This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording by Mark Bradford. A Journey to the Interior of the Earth by Jules Verne. Chapter 4 The Enemy to be Starved into Submission. He is gone! cried Martha, running out of her kitchen at the noise of the violent slamming of doors. Yes, I replied, completely gone. Well, and how about his dinner? said the old servant. He won't have any. And his supper? He won't have any. What? cried Martha, with clasped hands. No, my dear Martha, he will eat no more. No one in the house is to eat anything at all. Uncle Liedenbrock is going to make us all fast until he has succeeded in deciphering an undecipherable scrawl. Oh, my dear, must we then all die of hunger? I hardly dared to confess that, with so absolute a ruler as my uncle, this fate was inevitable. The old servant, visibly moved, returned to the kitchen, moaning piteously. When I was alone, I thought I would go and tell Groiben all about it. But how should I be able to escape from the house? The professor might return at any moment. And suppose he called me? And suppose he tackled me again with this logomachy, which might vainly have been set before ancient Oedipus? And if I did not obey his call, who could answer for what might happen? The wisest course was to remain where I was. A mineralogist at Benzanson had just sent us a collection of siliceous nodules, which I had to classify. So I set to work. I sorted, labelled, and arranged in their own glass case all these hollow specimens, in the cavity of each of which was a nest of little crystals. But this work did not succeed in absorbing all my attention. That old document kept working in my brain. My head throbbed with excitement, and I felt an undefined uneasiness. I was possessed with a presentiment of coming evil. In an hour my nodules were all arranged upon successive shelves. Then I dropped down into the old velvet armchair, my head thrown back and my hands joined over it. I lighted my long, crooked pipe, with a painting on it of an idle-looking naiad. Then I amused myself watching the process of the conversion of the tobacco into carbon, which was by slow degrees making my naiad into a negress. Now and then I listened to hear whether a well-known step was on the stairs. No. Where could my uncle be at that moment? I fancied him running under the noble trees which lined the road to Altona, gesticulating, making shots with his cane, thrashing the long grass, cutting the heads off the thistles, and disturbing the contemplative storks in their peaceful solitude. Would he return in triumph or in discouragement? Which would get the upper hand, he or the secret? I was thus asking myself questions, and mechanically taking between my fingers the sheet of paper mysteriously disfigured with the incomprehensible succession of letters I had written down, and I repeated to myself, What does it all mean? I sought to group the letters so as to form words. Quite impossible. When I put them together by twos, threes, fives, or sixes, nothing came of it but nonsense. To be sure, the fourteenth, fifteenth, and sixteenth letters made the English word ice, the eighty-third and two following made Sir, and in the midst of the document, in the second and third lines, I observed the words Rots, Mutable, Ira, Net, and Atra. Come now, I thought, 
These words seem to justify my uncle's view about the language of the document. In the fourth line appear the word luco, which means a sacred wood. It is true that in the third line was the word tabild, which looked like Hebrew, and in the last the purely French words mer, arc, mer. All this was enough to drive a poor fellow crazy. Four different languages in this ridiculous sentence. What connection could there possibly be between such words as ice, sir, anger, cruel, sacred wood, changeable, mother, bow, and sea? The first and the last might have something to do with each other. It was not at all surprising that in a document written in Iceland there should be mention of a sea of ice, but it was quite another thing to get to the end of this cryptogram with so small a clue. So I was struggling with an insurmountable difficulty. My brain got heated. My eyes watered over that sheet of paper. Its hundred and thirty-two letters seemed to flutter and fly around me like those motes of mingled light and darkness which float in the air around the head when the blood is rushing upwards with undue violence. I was a prey to a kind of hallucination. I was stifling. I wanted air. Unconsciously, I fanned myself with the bit of paper, the back and front of which successively came before my eyes. What was my surprise when, in one of those rapid revolutions, at the moment when the back was turned to me, I thought I caught sight of the Latin words craterem, terrestre, and others. A sudden light burst in upon me. These hints alone gave me the first glimpse of the truth. I had discovered the key to the cipher. To read the document, it would not even be necessary to read it through the paper. Such as it was, just such as it had been dictated to me, so it might be spelt out with ease. All those ingenious professorial combinations were coming right. He was right as to the arrangement of the letters. He was right as to the language. He had been within a hair's breadth of reading this Latin document from end to end, but that hair's breadth, chance had given it to me. You may be sure I felt stirred up. My eyes were dim. I could scarcely see. I had laid the paper upon the table. At a glance, I could tell the whole secret. At last I became more calm. I made a wise resolve to walk twice round the room quietly and settle my nerves, and then I returned into the deep gulf of the huge armchair. Now I'll read it, I cried, after having well distended my lungs with air. I leaned over the table. I laid my finger successively upon every letter, and without a pause, without one moment's hesitation, I read off the whole sentence aloud. Stupefaction! Terror! I sat overwhelmed as if with a sudden deadly blow. What? That which I read had actually really been done? A mortal man had had the audacity to penetrate— Ah! I cried, springing up. But no! No! My uncle shall never know it! He would insist upon doing it, too. He would want to know all about it. Ropes could not hold him, such a determined geologist as he is. He would start, he would, in spite of everything and everybody, and he would take me with him, and we should never get back. No! Never! Never! My over-excitement was beyond all description. No, no, it shall not be, I declared energetically and as it is in my power to prevent the knowledge of it coming into the mind of my tyrant, I will do it. By dint of turning this document round and round, he too might discover the key. I will destroy it. There was a little fire left on the hearth. I seized not only the paper, but Sacknesum's parchment, 
With a feverish hand, I was about to fling it all upon the coals, and utterly destroy and abolish this dangerous secret, when the study door opened, and my uncle appeared. Chapter 5 Famine, then Victory, followed by Dismay I had only just time to replace the unfortunate document upon the table. Professor Liedenbrock seemed to be greatly abstracted. The ruling thought gave him no rest. Evidently he had gone deeply into the matter, analytically and with profound scrutiny. He had brought all the resources of his mind to bear upon it during his walk, and he had come back to apply some new combination. He sat in his armchair, and pen in hand he began what looked very much like algebraic formulae. I followed with my eyes his trembling hands. I took count of every movement. Might not some unhoped-for result come of it? I trembled, too, very unnecessarily, since the true key was in my hands, and no other would open the secret. For three long hours my uncle worked on without a word, without lifting his head, rubbing out, beginning again, then rubbing out again, and so on a hundred times. I knew very well that if he succeeded in setting down these letters in every possible relative position, the sentence would come out. But I knew also that twenty letters alone could form two quintillions, four hundred and thirty-two quadrillions, nine hundred and two trillions, eight billions, a hundred and seventy-six millions, six hundred and forty thousand combinations. Now here were a hundred and thirty-two letters in this sentence, and these hundred and thirty-two letters would give a number of different sentences, each made up of at least a hundred and thirty-three figures, a number which passed far beyond all calculation or conception. So I felt reassured as far as regarded this heroic method of solving the difficulty. But time was passing away. Night came on. The street noises ceased. My uncle, bending over his task, noticed nothing, not even Martha half opening the door. He heard not a sound, not even that excellent woman saying, Will not monsieur take any supper to-night? And poor Martha had to go away unanswered. As for me, after long resistance, I was overcome by sleep, and fell off at the end of the sofa, while Uncle Liedenbrock went on calculating and rubbing out his calculations. When I awoke next morning, that indefatigable worker was still at his post. His red eyes, his pale complexion, his hair tangled between his feverish fingers, the red spots on his cheeks, revealed his desperate struggle with impossibilities, and the weariness of spirit, the mental wrestlings he must have undergone all through that unhappy night. To tell the plain truth, I pitied him. In spite of the reproaches which I considered I had a right to lay upon him, a certain feeling of compassion was beginning to gain upon me. The poor man was so entirely taken up with his one idea that he had even forgotten how to get angry. All the strength of his feelings was concentrated upon one point alone, and as their usual event was closed, it was to be feared lest extreme tension should give rise to an explosion sooner or later. I might with a word have loosened the screw of the steel vice that was crushing his brain, but that word I would not speak. Yet I was not an ill-natured fellow. Why was I dumb at such a crisis? Why so insensible to my uncle's interests? No, no, I repeated, I shall not speak. He would insist upon going. Nothing on earth could stop him. His imagination is a volcano, and to do that which other geologists have never done, he would risk his life. I will preserve silence. I will keep the secret which mere chance has revealed to me. 
To discover it would be to kill Professor Liedenbrock. Let him find it out himself if he can. I will never have it laid to my door that I led him to his destruction. Having formed this resolution, I folded my arms and waited. But I had not reckoned upon one little incident which turned up a few hours after. When our good Martha wanted to go to market, she found the door locked. The big key was gone. Who could have taken it out? Assuredly, it was my uncle, when he returned the night before from his hurried walk. Was this done on purpose, or was it a mistake? Did he want to reduce us by famine? This seemed like going rather too far. What, should Martha and I be victims of a position of things in which we had not the smallest interest? It was a fact that a few years before this, whilst my uncle was working at his great classification of minerals, he was forty-eight hours without eating, and all his household were obliged to share in this scientific fast. As for me, what I remember is that I got severe cramps in my stomach, which hardly suited the constitution of a hungry, growing lad. Now it appeared to me as if breakfast was going to be wanting, just as supper had been the night before. Yet I resolved to be a hero, and not to be conquered by the pangs of hunger. Martha took it very seriously, and, poor woman, was very much distressed. As for me, the impossibility of leaving the house distressed me a good deal more, and for a very good reason. A caged lover's feelings may easily be imagined. My uncle went on working. His imagination went off rambling into the ideal world of combinations. He was far away from earth, and really far away from earthly wants. About noon, hunger began to stimulate me severely. Martha had, without thinking any harm, cleared out the larder the night before, so that now there was nothing left in the house. Still I held out. I made it a point of honor. Two o'clock struck. This was becoming ridiculous. Worse than that, unbearable. I began to say to myself that I was exaggerating the importance of the document, that my uncle would surely not believe in it, that he would set it down as a mere puzzle, that if it came to the worst we should lay violent hands on him and keep him at home if he thought on venturing on the expedition, that, after all, he might himself discover the key of the cipher, and that then I should be clear at the mere expense of my involuntary abstinence. These reasons seemed excellent to me, though on the night before I should have rejected them with indignation. I even went so far as to condemn myself for my absurdity in having waited so long, and I finally resolved to let it all out. I was therefore meditating a proper introduction to the matter, so as not to seem too abrupt, when the professor jumped up, clapped on his hat, and prepared to go out. Surely he was not going out to shut us in again. No, never! Uncle! I cried. He seemed not to hear me. Uncle Liedenbrock! I cried, lifting up my voice. Ay, he answered, like a man suddenly waking. Uncle, that key! What key? The door key? No, no, I cried. The key of the document. The professor stared at me over his spectacles. No doubt he saw something unusual in the expression of my countenance, for he laid hold of my arm and speechlessly questioned me with his eyes. Yes, never was a question more forcibly put. I nodded my head up and down. He shook his pityingly, as if he was dealing with a lunatic. I gave a more affirmative gesture. His eyes glistened and sparkled with live fire. His hand was shaken threateningly. 
this mute conversation at such a momentous crisis would have riveted the attention of the most indifferent. And the fact really was that I dared not speak now, so intense was the excitement for fear lest my uncle should smother me in his first joyful embraces. But he became so urgent that I was at last compelled to answer. Yes, that key, chance. What is that you are saying? he shouted with indescribable emotion. There, read that, I said, presenting a sheet of paper on which I had written. But there is nothing in this, he answered, crumpling up the paper. No, nothing until you proceed to read from the end to the beginning. I had not finished my sentence when the professor broke out into a cry, nay, a roar. A new revelation burst in upon him. He was transformed. Aha! Clever Sacknessum! he cried. You had first written out your sentence the wrong way. And darting upon the paper, with eyes bedimmed and voice choked with emotion, he read the whole document from the last letter to the first. It was conceived in the following terms. In Sneffels Joculus Craterum Quem Delibat, Umbra Scartaris, Julii Intracalendusque Descende, Audax Viator, et Terrestre Centrum Atinges, Quod Fessi Arnes Sacnusum, which bad Latin may be translated thus. Descend, bold traveller, into the crater of the yokel of Sneffels, which the chateau of Scartaris touches before the calends of July, and you will attain the centre of the earth, which I have done. Arnis Agnesum. In reading this, my uncle gave a spring, as if he had touched a laden jar. His audacity, his joy, and his convictions were magnificent to behold. He came and he went. He seized his head between both his hands. He pushed the chairs out of their places. He piled up his books. Incredible as it may seem, he rattled his precious nodules of flints together. He sent a kick here, a thump there. At last his nerves calmed down, and like a man exhausted by too lavish an expenditure of vital power, he sank back exhausted into his armchair. "'What o'clock is it?' he asked, after a few moments of silence. Three o'clock,' I replied. "'Is it really? The dinner hour is past, and I did not know it. I am half dead with hunger. Come on, and after dinner—' "'Well?' After dinner, pack up my trunk. What? I cried. And yours, replied the indefatigable professor, entering the dining room. Chapter 6 Exciting Discussions About an Unparalleled Enterprise At these words a cold shiver ran through me. Yet I controlled myself. I even resolved to put a good face upon it. Scientific arguments alone could have any weight with Professor Liedenbrock. Now there were good ones against the practicability of such a journey. Penetrate to the center of the earth? What nonsense! But I kept my dialectic battery in reserve for a suitable opportunity, and I interested myself in the prospect of my dinner, which was not yet forthcoming. It is no use to tell of the rage and imprecations of my uncle before the empty table. Explanations were given, Martha was set at liberty, ran off to the market, and did her part so well that in an hour afterwards my hunger was appeased, and I was able to return to the contemplation of the gravity of the situation. During all dinner-time my uncle was almost merry. He indulged in some of those learned jokes which never do anybody any harm. Dessert over, he beckoned me into his study. I obeyed. He sat at one end of his table, I at the other. "'Axel,' said he very mildly, 
you are a very ingenious young man. You have done me a splendid service, at a moment when, wearied out with the struggle, I was going to abandon the contest. Where should I have lost myself? None can tell. Never, my lad, shall I forget it, and you shall have your share in the glory to which your discovery will lead. Oh, come, thought I, he is in a good way. Now is the time for discussing that same glory. Before all things, my uncle resumed, I enjoin you to preserve the most inviolable secrecy. You understand? There are not a few in the scientific world who envy my success, and many would be ready to undertake this enterprise, to whom our return should be the first news of it. Do you really think there are many people bold enough? said I. Certainly. Who would hesitate to acquire such renown? If that document were divulged, a whole army of geologists would be ready to rush into the footsteps of Arne Saknussem. I don't feel so very sure of that, uncle, I replied, for we have no proof of the authenticity of this document. What? Not of the book inside which we have discovered it? Granted, I admit that Saknussem may have written these lines, but does it follow that he has really accomplished such a journey? And may it not be that this old parchment is intended to mislead? I almost regretted having uttered this last word, which dropped from me in an unguarded moment. The professor bent his shaggy brows, and I feared I had seriously compromised my own safety. Happily, no great harm came of it. A smile flitted across the lip of my severe companion, and he answered, That is what we shall see. Ah, said I, rather put out, but do let me exhaust all the possible objections against this document. Speak, my boy, don't be afraid. You are quite at liberty to express your opinions. You are no longer my nephew only, but my colleague. Pray go on. Well, in the first place, I wish to ask what are this yokel, this sneffles, and this scartaris, names which I have never heard before. Nothing easier. I received not long ago a map from my friend Augustus Petermann at Leipzig. Nothing could be more apropos. Take down the third atlas in the second shelf in the large bookcase, series Z, plate four. I rose, and with the help of such precise instructions could not fail to find the required atlas. My uncle opened it and said, Here is one of the best maps of Iceland, that of Handerson, and I believe this will solve the worst of our difficulties. I bent over the map. You see this volcanic island, said the professor. Observe that all the volcanoes are called yokels, a word which means glacier in Icelandic, and under the high latitude of Iceland, nearly all the active volcanoes discharge through beds of ice. Hence, this term of yokel is applied to all the eruptive mountains in Iceland. Very good, said I. But what of sneffles? I was hoping that this question would be unanswerable, but I was mistaken. My uncle replied, Follow my finger along the west coast of Iceland. Do you see Reykjavik, the capital? You do. Well, ascend the innumerable fjords that indent those sea-beaten shores and stop at the sixty-fifth degree of latitude. What do you see there? I see a peninsula looking like a thigh-bone with the knee-bone at the end of it. A very fair comparison, my lad. Now do you see anything upon that knee-bone? Yes, a mountain rising out of the sea. Right. That is Sneffel. That Sneffel? It is. It is a mountain five thousand feet high, one of the most remarkable in the world if its crater leads down to the center of the earth. 
"'But that is impossible,' I said, shrugging my shoulders, and disgusted at such a ridiculous supposition. "'Impossible,' said the professor severely. "'And why, pray?' "'Because this crater is evidently filled with lava and burning rocks, and therefore—' "'But suppose it is an extinct volcano.' "'Extinct?' "'Yes.' The number of active volcanoes on the surface of the globe is at the present time only about three hundred, but there is a very much larger number of extinct ones. Now, Sneffel is one of these. Since historic times there has been but one eruption of this mountain, that of 1219. From that time it has quieted down more and more, and now it is no longer reckoned among active volcanoes. To such positive statements I could make no reply. I therefore took refuge in other dark passages of the document. What is the meaning of this word Scarteris, and what have the Calends of July to do with it? My uncle took a few minutes to consider. For one short moment I felt a ray of hope, speedily to be extinguished. For he soon answered thus. What is darkness to you is light to me. This proves the ingenious care with which Sacnesum guarded and defined his discovery. Sneffels, or Sneffel, has several craters. It was therefore necessary to point out which of these leads to the centre of the globe. What did the Icelandic sage do? He observed that at the approach of the Calends of July, that is to say, in the last day of June, one of the peaks, called Scartaris, flung its shadow down the mouth of that particular crater, and he committed that fact to his document. Could there possibly have been a more exact guide? As soon as we have arrived at the summit of Sneffel, we shall have no hesitation as to the proper road to take. Decidedly, my uncle had answered every one of my objections. I saw that his position on the old parchment was impregnable. I therefore ceased to press him upon that part of the subject, and as above all things he must be convinced, I passed on to scientific objections which in my opinion were far more serious. "'Well, then,' I said, "'I am forced to admit that Sacknesum's sentence is clear, and leaves no room for doubt. I will even allow that the document bears every mark and evidence of authenticity. That learned philosopher did get to the bottom of Sneffels.' He has seen the shadow of Scartaris touch the edge of the crater before the Calends of July. He may even have heard the legendary stories told in his day about that crater reaching to the center of the world. But as for reaching it himself, as for performing the journey, and returning if he ever went, I say no, he never, never did that. Now for your reason, said my uncle ironically. All the theories of science demonstrate such a feat to be impracticable. The theories say that, do they? replied the professor in the tone of a meek disciple. Oh, unpleasant theories! How the theories will hinder us, won't they? I saw that he was only laughing at me, but I went on all the same. Yes, it is perfectly well known that the internal temperature rises one degree for every seventy feet in depth. Now, admitting this proportion to be constant, and the radius of the earth being fifteen hundred leagues, there must be a temperature of three hundred sixty thousand thirty-two degrees at the center of the earth. Therefore, all the substances that compose the body of this earth must exist there in a state of incandescent gas, for the metals that most resist the action of heat, gold and platinum, and the hardest rocks, can never be either solid or liquid under such a temperature. I have therefore good reason for asking if it is possible to penetrate through such a medium. So, Axel, it is the heat that troubles you? Of course it is. Were we to reach a depth of thirty miles we should have arrived at the limit of the terrestrial crust, for there the temperature will be more than 2,372 degrees. Are you afraid of being put into a state of fusion? I will leave you to decide that question, I answered rather sullenly. 
"'This is my decision,' replied Professor Liedenbrock, putting on one of his grandest airs. "'Neither you nor anybody else knows with any certainty what is going on in the interior of this globe, since not the twelve-thousandth part of its radius is known. Science is eminently perfectible, and every new theory is soon routed by a newer. Was it not always believed until Fourier that the temperature of the interplanetary spaces decreased perpetually?' And is it not known at the present time that the greatest cold of the ethereal regions is never lower than forty degrees below zero? Why should it not be the same with the internal heat? Why should it not, at a certain depth, attain an impassable limit, instead of rising to such a point as to fuse the most infusible metals? As my uncle was now taking his stand upon hypotheses, of course, there was nothing to be said. Well, I will tell you that true savants, among them Poisson, have demonstrated that if a heat of 360,000 degrees existed in the interior of the globe, the fiery gases arising from the fused matter would acquire an elastic force which the crust of the earth would be unable to resist, and that it would explode like the plates of a bursting boiler. That is Poisson's opinion, my uncle, nothing more. Granted, but it is likewise the creed adopted by other distinguished geologists, that the interior of the globe is neither gas nor water, nor any of the heaviest minerals known, for in none of these cases would the earth weigh what it does. Oh, with figures you may prove anything. But is it the same with facts? Is it not known that the number of volcanoes has diminished since the first days of creation? And if there is central heat, may we not thence conclude that it is in process of diminution? My good uncle, if you will enter into the region of speculation, I can discuss the matter no longer. "'but I have to tell you that the highest names have come to the support of my views. "'Do you remember a visit paid to me by the celebrated chemist Humphrey Davy in 1825? "'Not at all, for I was not born until nineteen years afterwards. "'Well, Humphrey Davy did call upon me on his way through Hamburg. "'We were long engaged in discussing, amongst other problems, "'the hypothesis of the liquid structure of the terrestrial nucleus. "'We were agreed that it could not be in a liquid state, "'for a reason which science has never been able to confute.' "'And what is that reason?' I said, rather astonished. "'Because this liquid mass would be subject, like the ocean, to the lunar attraction, "'and therefore twice every day there would be internal tides, "'which, upheaving the terrestrial crust, would cause periodical earthquakes. "'Yet it is evident that the surface of the globe has been subject to the action of fire,' I replied, "'and it is quite reasonable to suppose that the external crust cooled down first, "'whilst the heat took refuge down to the centre. "'Quite a mistake,' my uncle answered. "'The earth has been heated by combustion on its surface, that is all. "'Its surface was composed of a great number of metals, "'such as potassium and sodium, "'which have the peculiar property of igniting "'at the mere contact with air and water. "'These metals kindled when the atmospheric vapours "'fell in rain upon the soil, "'and by and by, when the waters penetrated "'into the fissures of the crust of the earth, "'they broke out into fresh combustion "'with explosions and eruptions.' Such was the cause of the numerous volcanoes at the origin of the earth. Upon my word, this is a very clever hypothesis, I exclaimed, in spite rather of myself. And which Humphrey Davy demonstrated to me by a simple experiment. He formed a small ball of the metals which I have named, and which was a very fair representation of our globe. Whenever he caused a fine dew of rain to fall upon its surface, it heaved up into little monticules, it became oxidized and formed miniature mountains. A crater broke open at one of its summits. The eruption took place, and communicated to the whole of the ball such a heat that it could not be held in the hand. 
In truth, I was beginning to be shaken by the professor's arguments, besides which he gave additional weight to them by his usual ardor and fervent enthusiasm. You see, Axel, he added, the condition of the terrestrial nucleus has given rise to various hypotheses among geologists. There is no proof at all for this internal heat. My opinion is that there is no such thing. It cannot be. Besides, we shall see for ourselves, and, like Arnesechnusum, we shall know exactly what to hold as truth concerning this grand question. Very well, we shall see, I replied, feeling myself carried off by his contagious enthusiasm. Yes, we shall see, that is, if it is possible to see anything there. And why not? May we not depend upon electric phenomena to give us light? May we not even expect light from the atmosphere, the pressure of which may render it luminous as we approach the centre? Yes, yes, said I, that is possible too. It is certain, exclaimed my uncle in a tone of triumph. But silence, do you hear me? Silence upon the whole subject, and let no one get before us in this design of discovering the centre of the earth. End of chapter 6 Recorded October 12, 2005, in Longmont, Colorado.